0: We're still giving a lot of lip service to the impact of prevention, and we're probably not doing enough yet. We're still, for the most part, helping people with their sickness, as opposed to getting invested in keeping them healthy and you know, keeping their quality of life as good as it can be for as long as it can be.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people in passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: Jan Bruce has turned a passion for a healthy living into a series of entrepreneurial endeavors using her resilient nature to drive growth in a challenging market. Today, she helps the nation's largest companies optimize for resilience at their locations in order to manage what she perceives as a rapidly altering value exchange between employer and employee.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm David Shawitz.
2: And I'm Lisa Soonan. And today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50,
1: I stand yeah, right buddy. here before you today, and I'm going to offer you something as precious as gold. You know what that is? Anybody? Anybody? Opportunity. It's opportunity. 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 You've got, You've got the things. guts. You've got the gumption. You've got the desire. I guarantee you, you can succeed. There's gold to be had at the end of those golden arches. Golden arches. Golden arches. Now who's with me? Who wants to jump on that ladder to success? Become part of the McDonald's. Now who's with me?
2: So I saw this movie, The Founder. Have you seen it, David?
1: I no, but after I read your blog about it, I was really motivated to watch it. It sounded, um, it sounded like a fascinating movie, uh, despite your hard-ass take on it. <laughs> it was so
2: interesting to watch from my point of view as an investor, thinking about you know what a ruthless kind of son of a bitch the guy was and how he kind of took over the business from the original founders, but on the other hand created something of incredible, incredible value for his investors and. I guess for some portion I, of society, you kind of—I
1: mean, you—you you wrote your your comments in a kind of approving way. It was sort of like, well, it, you kind of have to be a hard ass to. Uh, do you think how, how true do you think that is in general? Do you think you have to be sort of like uh, like does the hard ass or the nasty person the person who steals the other people's business is is that what it takes to win in entrepreneurship?
2: God, I hope not. Actually, <laughs> um, although I know at least the hard ass part. Uh, Sometimes it is true. I don't know about, I don't think the stealing part's true, but I definitely think the hardest part might be true. But we're going to ask Jan that in a minute. Um, So uh, by way of, of transition here, when you ask Jan Bruce where she grew up, she says, in the media business. And Jan worked early on in the magazine and then digital media sectors, backing into the health and wellness category through opportunity. She planned a career as editor and publisher, always found herself gravitating to selling in the advertising rather than focused on editorial. Turns out she was a born entrepreneur, and now that's where she again finds herself as CEO of Mequilibrium. So, Jan, what do you think? Do entrepreneurs have to be a hard ass to, to be successful?
0: Well, I definitely think you have to be a hard ass. I, I, at least you have to be hard-headed. You, know, you, have to, uh, you get knocked around a lot, and you have to get back up and keep trying. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how much you have to step on people. But you
1: definitely need... as long as they're not in your way, you don't have to go out of your way to step on. People. Yeah,
0: if they're not in your way, but but you do have to you do have to be uh, pretty hard nosed, I would say.
2: Well, Hal, I guess if they're resilient, they'll get through it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, tell us about your early career and how that led you to health and wellness. As I understand, it was sort of circumstance, not plan.
0: Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, the health and wellness aspect was more personal than professional for many years, but and I. And I was working, for the most part, in large you know, general interest media companies. I actually uh, first worked at Rolling Stone, uh, which is cool. music and news and culture, and that was really cool. Uh, that was not necessarily the healthiest place to work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but And I also worked for Newsweek and the Washington Post company and um, Hearst Eventually, I was recruited to work for uh, a venture-backed startup, uh, and they had a suite of health and fitness titles. And it was, it was almost like, wow! Now I I get to do my job, but I actually like the content. This is you know I, I understand it and I like it and I enjoy reading it. It's not like a chore to, to read every you know every word of of what we're publishing. Uh, and so I found myself uh, gravitating towards. The
1: health and and fitness and wellness field and and um, for the most part have stayed there. I would say unless I had a. So Jen, was this was this walking magazine? Is that right? Walking was
0: the well. Walking was one of the properties in the company that I um, went to work for, and it's it, actually I was I was working away at this at this company, and and um, I was a I was. First brought in to be the uh, Director of Circulation, which is like marketing to get users, right? To get eyeballs, to get subscriptions, to get newsstand sales, all that kind of stuff. And eventually, or or fairly quickly rather, I was was promoted to being uh, the general manager and the publisher. And the company wasn't doing that well, and I actually decided to buy one of the properties, my favorite one, the one that I thought that had the most opportunity. So there I was. I had no idea what I was doing. talk about entrepreneurship. and I bought the assets of this of this uh, media property and turned it around and about five, six years later, I sold it. And so I was definitely a
1: Bonafide entrepreneur. Wow! So, could you tell us about that? What was the assets and what what was the pivot that you introduced? So, I bought the assets of of uh, the company's largest magazine property, which was called Walking, and
0: uh, it was a funny thing, David. the The company, the owners, had positioned it as um, you know fitness for seniors. This was in the '90s, and there was the idea of you know the, culturally, we were really starting to. Shift our thinking about exercise being, or, or you know, being a sort of leisure, occasional leisure time thing, and and you know, culturally we were starting to understand that regular exercise uh, was um, you know essential or uh, for for good health, and that was when you had like the Framingham Heart Study and a whole bunch of other things coming out that showed that. Uh, You know, sedentary behavior was actually a determinant in chronic conditions. And so this company has started this magazine called Walking, which is supposed to be accessible fitness for seniors.
1: Like 95% of the ads from Rockport kind of thing?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I was like 30 years old and I was like, what? What is that? And I sort of thought about it and I said, well, wait a minute, this is actually... For women. women you know women I see a lot of women doing fitness walking and Reebok and um, Nike and all these other shoes you know Avia were um, all starting these fitness lines for women which uh, you know and and the, you know In terms of shoes and stuff so I actually bought the assets of this property walking and I repositioned it to be for women and you know women in their like 30s and 40s and it just took off. I mean, our circulation tripled. Wow.
1: And this was pre-yoga pants, right?
0: <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, first it was walking, then it was yoga. Um, and then, well, you know, maybe before that it was aerobics and walking and yoga.
2: And the
1: foot warmers, what do you call it? The Jane... Um, the Jane Fonda thing. Jane Fonda foot warmers, oh, yeah, right? yeah, There really. you, there
2: you that go. That was a little go. bit earlier, the feel the burn there. stuff. Oh, I, <laughs> leg warmers, yeah. Just freaking me out. Aerobics. Exactly. That's it. You were there for a while, and then sold that company, and then you bought and sold Body and Soul and Whole Living. Exactly, and also. you know, in between that, I got I worked in digital media, and I because that was the new thing, you know,
0: turn of the century, and um, it was really hot and it was really exciting, and all the rules were being created, uh, you know, uh, as we were, you know, as we were. Going along, we were we were trying to figure out like how do you sell, you know, how do you manage inventory online, how do you sell advertising, uh, you know when it's sort of uh, dynamically, you know it's here and if we don't if you don't fill it it's gone, you know stuff like that. And um, we, uh, but then I went and did essentially the same thing. I I, I found a, a very old media company in Massachusetts called um, New Age Publishing, and it had. A phenomenal. I, I, I used to say it had great bones. You know, it had a phenomenal backlist of books and newsletters and uh, you know DVDs and it had a magazine and it had um, a website. And I I took it over and uh, with a few people we we self-funded the turnaround and we repositioned it as Body and Soul and we launched the website as WholeLiving.com. And we, we just changed it up. You know. The, the, uh, we made it very um, accessible, not sort of ideological, made it very uh, beautiful, you know, t- so that consumers were interested in things like meditation and yoga and natural food and uh, sustainability. And about two years into that, we sold the company to Martha Stewart. So
2: does that mean you know how to make a perfect turkey now?
0: It absolutely does. <laughs> it absolutely does
2: so yeah I know you work for Martha Stewart for was she around time.
1: during that time
2: he was for most of it
1: yeah I thought there was a two-year absence or something
2: <laughs> yep she was around for 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 most of it there was the there was there was
0: the uh, you know hiatus or whatever you want to call it yeah. but uh, the sabbatical but um, Martha was um, it was you know it was um, it was a great time uh, the company at the time that I joined was um, you know, sort of coming, well, it was doing well. And then as she came back, it it actually went into, I think its best few years. Um, A lot of creativity. You know, she came out on TV stronger than ever with her show and The Apprentice. And it was great.
2: I have to say, though, her current show with Snoop Dogg is my absolute favorite. It's hilarious. (laughs) Have you seen that cooking show? The Snoop Snoop Dogg and Martha? Oh, my God, it's so funny. Anyways, so you said that you were there uh, when we were talking. You talked about being, you know, kind of a big shot at the Martha Stewart Omnimedia and that there were lots of people hanging around on the executive floor who were making gobs of money but were so stressed out and not taking care of themselves, and it inspired you to think about how healthy living could be a business beyond media. Yeah, you know, exactly. Does it surprise you that the field's become so large? Uh, Well, you know... I've been working in
0: in consumer health and wellness for a long time now, and I think we have a tendency to say, "Oh, it's, you know, nothing really changes." But if you think about it, in our lifetimes, we've changed. You know, at a, uh, we we've changed our thinking about diet, exercise, sleep. You know, in a in a huge way. You know, we really didn't think about. Most people did not think about. Um, you know, what they put into their bodies as medicinal or you know as as impactful twenty years ago. And most people did not really embrace the idea of uh, frequent exercise, and now we're doing it with sleep. You know, so it's there are a lot of changes. And um, I think that as uh, you know I think that from the healthcare perspective, we're still, I and mean, I'm going to say something a little bit radical. We're still giving a lot of lip service to the impact of prevention, and we're probably not doing enough yet. you know we're we're still, for the most part, helping people with their sickness as opposed to getting invested in in keeping them. Healthy and you know keeping their quality of life as good as it can be for as long as it can be.
1: So this really takes us to your your current uh, uh, work at Mequibli- Mequilibrium, where your your website there says that you Mequilibrium quote builds transformational human and organizational resilience. Could you help us understand what does that mean? How do you actually operationally define resilience?
0: Sure, Resil- resilience is the capacity to recover from adversity from setback from strain and then rebound and go forward you know and optimize that does that make sense to you
1: yeah there's i'm aware there's a lot of research out of Penn and elsewhere right uh, on resilience and on what are the on what are the qualities associated with it and 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 i know there's a lot of interest in trying to cultivate it
0: so so it turns out the science is, is incontrovertible in a couple of things on a couple of things. First of all, it's our thoughts and our feelings far more than the events around us that shape our behaviors. And it turns out that our abilities to recover and optimize under pressure or strain uh, come down to certain characteristics. It, that, that sort of can you know, condition our thinking or you know, characteristics about how we think. And um, those can, you know, let me give you a couple of them, like for emotion control and impulse control. Like how we, how we manage our emotions in the midst of adversity and how we manage our behaviors, you know, our, our impulses under adversity are very, very um, significant and impactful to how we manage under stress and strain. The uh, you know a couple of other things are, for example, um, are we empathetic? You know, can we relate to people and can we rely on people, or do we kind of go inward? Are we positive? Are we able to be realistic and optimistic? You know, optimistic but realistic, and uh, have good critical thinking skills. So it turns out that many of these. Uh, characteristics are not personality traits but actually can be uh, improved and managed with some training and what what we essentially are doing is uh, training people coaching people to change those habits by you know first making them aware of them and then changing you know changing their their um, approach to things so it's 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 essentially we're combining neuroscience with you know, data-driven, interactive
1: technology. It sounds like there are two components here. It sounds like first you've defined what you would consider the core elements of resilience or the dimensions of resilience, um, and you believe that you've been able to define or that you can uh, delineate them. And then the second thing is your hypothesis or, or I guess, the data uh, that that you've seen suggests that these uh, that uh, these qualities aren't just something that you're sort of you're born with and good luck bad luck that's how it is. That's right. But rather they're modifiable and that with appropriate training it sounds like in for, from way you've described it just now I assume in for with something like you know, cognitive behavioral therapy they can be modified and inflected. Is 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 that what you're arguing?
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And you know a lot of it is acquired behaviors. You know oftentimes we 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 acquire these behaviors from our families or the people that we are, are that are around us in um, you know early childhood. But um, we are able to modify this.
2: So let me ask you, I know that the the products you sell, the services you sell are sold primarily to Fortune One Thousand type companies. Is it weirdly ironic that people get totally stressed out from their jobs and then the employer turns around and gives you stress management tools? I mean, how, how credible is that for employees?
0: It is, um, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, there are a lot of, uh, this is one of the ways that we are, you know, I like to say we are different, you know, we are not a wellness product because we are, you know, we work in a very different way. This is much more about personal um, you know, personal transformation and personal
2: power. And then, then then like a wellness thing. But Then what? What is wellness by distinction? Here's one of the things that I think makes it clear. If your
0: company gives you a product that says we can help you lose weight or we can help you stop smoking, nine out of ten people who are overweight or who are smokers run screaming and crying away from that. You know, they're, they're not interested in that because they understand that it creates, you know, it, it, it um, basically entails some pain on their part. And they also understand today that companies are giving them those programs to manage the cost of their health care. This is a product that helps, you know, what we basically say to people to when we're promoting to people is um, we can help you um, be more successful and powerful. We can help you manage the drudge and overwhelm of your life, and that is a much different message than you know doing this so that your company doesn't have to shell out more for your you know your visits to the, your primary care physician because you have a headache and a backache or, or you're overweight things like that. Does that
2: makes sense. It, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's an interesting distinction because I know that at least from the studies I've seen and and participated in. That the wellness side of things really hasn't produced a financial return on investment for employers. Um, That's right. But I think you believe that you're or are quite convinced that your your product does, it, even though it's not focused on that primarily. I mean, I'll, I'll just say it. You know, the most polite way for me to say this is the jury's still out. <laughs> <laughs> the jury's still out on wellness
0: programs. Um, you know, and and we also, um, I think there's a lot of literature about that um, you know helping teaching people how to take care of themselves and you know health education programs, which is essentially what wellness programs are um, are not um, you know are not nearly as um, effective at helping people um, be healthy. And in fact, you know their um, you know their demographics, that where they live, their DNA, those things are, you know, far more impactful or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, highly correlated to their, to their health.
1: Right, how your zip code is more impactful than some that's people right. say than your genetic that's, code that's, for some illnesses. Right. But I, I think what Lisa was trying to ask, because she likes when I mansplain her stuff, um, <laughs> is, uh, uh, ah. but uh, or, t- or framed differently, to take a page out of the Lisa Badass book. Um, this is all nice and well and good, but talk to me about ROI. So the if ROI, I, uh, if, yeah, if, if, yeah. If, if, yeah.
0: Sorry I didn't get there immediately. We, we get an ROI on absence you know, reduction of of absence, um, improvement of um, sort of focus and or reduction of presenteeism and, um, you know, an engagement you know, you know, it, you know, as measured by either anything from a net promoter score to a customer satisfaction
1: score. But the critique critics like um, uh, Al Lewis, or who are, are you're missing you're missing Lisa's facial expressions here. Um, but the um, but the, but I mean, the 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 challenge with some of the wellness stuff is that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's really just a something that I agree that with you. I can't really, really quantify the ROI, but then what sell but it what to the we CFO. are
0: right, and I think that's because they are trying to quantify that. Most of the ROI for wellness is in um, reduction of you know health risks or reduction of uh, health, you know, claims costs. Whereas what we're doing, is, you know, where we see the ROI, David and Lisa, is in um, improved engagement and performance in the workplace, however the company wants to measure that.
2: So if you believe, which I know you do, that a lot of the the resilience can be taught and learned mm-hmm. um, and it's not just, um, you know, hardwired, but some of it is hardwired and personality-based, why do employers invest in this when they, you know, people change jobs every couple of years, you know, millennials change jobs, the uh, reports are four times in the first 10 years of employment, Um, If 70% of people, as it's been reported, are looking for a job at any one time, why do you spend money on this stuff if they just walk right out the door a couple years later?
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, I I think that the forces that are driving the need for uh, individual and organizational resilience are some of the um, most you know sort of the biggest challenges that employers are are facing you know first of all most of the most of these companies are 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 open for business in the midst of um you know a a climate of volatility and uh you know an acceleration of change to the point where they have no you know people don't know what is going to happen in the future the only thing they're certain about is that the future is like unclear uh the set, so the, it's kind of this you know sort of volatile unstable fast changing situation which which by the way uh requires people and organizations to be agile and resilient so that they can stay focused in the midst of continuing adversity the second trend is that individuals are being you know more and more risk is being placed on individuals and um, you know, you know, ten years out the window, healthcare is pushing the risk down. So there's this new, era, you know, need for self-reliance and resilience. And then, uh, you know, the third thing is that you know, at, then you pile on like millennials who have very different um, uh, ideas and you know uh, about work and their relationship with work, you know,
2: long-term work is not necessarily a good thing for, in their mind. I think they care a lot more about artisanal coffee in the workplace. <laughs> they, well, they, they care about
0: purposeful work and make and getting more skills. Uh, you know, and, you know, and so in that situation, what companies are, are desperate to do is have an agile culture that can help them manage through this climate and have them be there as long as they can. It's sort of like they know they're going to leave, but they have they need them to be agile and engaged as long as they're there. And that is where we come in.
1: And I guess one of the questions, and it comes back a little bit to the ROI, is when we talk about people talk about wellness stuff, they, you know... The, the idea is that I always think about is if something really improved the ROI, you'd sell it to the CFO and you say, here, we'll get, give us a fraction of what you're saving on the ba- of your increased productivity or, or your or your reduction in losses. Um, on the other hand, if something is basically a retention tool, then you sell it to HR and you're like saying, OK, here we have like like Lisa was sort of joking here. We have artisanal coffee. We got um, jelly beans and we have, uh, you know, we'll pay for your health club and we'll have this for your, you know, for your mental health, uh, you know, this resilient thing, because it sounds cool, but it's purely for like you know, it's the idea that people think it's good for them, not the particular demonstration or lack thereof of, of, of any ROI. Um, how, how how do you see it? How, how do you? Do you feel like you're doing both or one or the other? Do you know, is it the kind of thing that you sell to HR as a, this is a cool thing you can offer uh, your prospective employees to um, attract them and retain them at your company? Or do you say this will make your employees better and increase the productivity?
0: We say the latter. This is about making your employees better. It's also about making your managers better. Because a lot of what we do is help people be more resilient and, and, and bring resilience Uh, to, you know, to the culture, and it's, this is definitely about helping people be better and be more engaged and feel connected to the work that they do.
1: Is there a component of this where um, you, uh, you know, part of, if you're able to assess and quantify resilience, is that an element that employers ask about using in uh, evaluating the people they're uh, considering hiring?
0: Uh, we do. It's, it's funny. We don't use. We don't offer this as a hiring tool, but there is. Um, we are exploring that opportunity because we've been. Uh, we've been asked. I mean, one. The, think about this. You know, our measure of res, of a person's resilience, which is a proprietary uh, tool that we have developed, and it has been validated. You know, clinically validated. Uh, we find that it is kind of a, uh, a it, it is a standard measurement for a person's ability to you know, to um, be sort of focused, to manage through adversity, to take action, to stay motivated in the midst of pressure. And what this tool can do for companies is um, is 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 help them. By helping their employees, you know, give them the power to, um, you know, to to succeed, no matter what's going on in the organization. You know, your customers are are calling in, and you need resilient employees. You know, your business, you know, your business model is changing because your customers are no longer showing up in your store; they're actually um, going online, and you need to, you know, you need to to change that rapidly we, those are the kinds of problems that we can have, those are the kinds of situations that we help with. It's like,
2: it's transformative power. So to sound uh, slightly cynical, you know, this sounds very um, resonant, I think, when you're in California, especially here, you know, (coughs) Marin. Yeah, really, I live in Marin, I hug a tree every day, you know, Google's around the corner and you know this is they've got yoga pods i mean it all sounds very yeah appropriate to totally. this type of environment or maybe to manhattan yeah where you know let me tell you a story I... about when i started the company i so there i was at martha's that i was thinking
0: about how much the um you know how stressed out everyone was and i was particularly struck with how how much um you know how much more people understood about how to properly take care of themselves yet they they weren't,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I you know and and I started thinking about you know there really aren't any uh, software applications that can really help people start to um, you know change their thinking you know like the way if you could talk to a really good executive coach or life coach or therapist there you know there really wasn't I thought there was a real opportunity to try to do this on online or you know digitally and. And also I thought about how much um, you know, people were not sort of, even though they knew what to do, they were not taking action. So I started, given that I was a publisher and an editor and entrepreneur, I started like interviewing a lot of people, looking at a lot of different therapies. That, you know, it's like, what would be an effective way to help people um, you know, get their head in the game and start to um, change their thinking so they could change their behavior. And I talked to a lot of people like in integrative medicine and mind-body. I talked to this woman who I was actually thinking, oh, I should start the company with her because she, she was very much about breathing and meditation and you know, then, you know, fixing your diet and getting enough sleep. And then I was like, you know, I was walking back from a meeting, and I was like, yeah, but that's all the same old, same old stuff. Then I met this guy out of the University of Pennsylvania who was a resilience expert. And he said to me, "Um, take this, you know, answer these 60 questions, and we will look at your thinking styles. And what he told me when we finished this was that I was not afraid to take risks, which is true, that I was, um, I was fairly optimistic, but I was um, realistic that under pressure, I couldn't decide what to do first. Like I had trouble thinking up my priorities, which was very true, if you know me, because I want to do everything Immediately, and that there was some impulsiveness to this, and he said, "I think a lot of your stress comes from the fact that you have so many priorities that you can't figure out what to do, so then you get stuck and then you're stressed out." And I was like, "Oh my God, this is so much more powerful than telling me to breathe, because I know how to breathe. I'm Dr. Angie." what? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It, he, was one of Sel- he was one of Seligman's fellows. And now he is my partner. He was, he's one of the founders of our company because what we did was I said, can you, you know, I want to do that with software. I want to do what you just did with me with software. And, you know, five, six years later, that's, that's how we, that's how we work. We, we help people by first understanding how they, what their pressures are and how they deal with pressure. And then we start to fix it. And by making them aware it, it, we are able to change their thinking.
2: So let me ask you, because I think, you know, we're getting to, unfortunately, to the end of our time. It's such an interesting topic to me. And I know that um, there is a lot of validity to the science behind this stuff. And I, and I, I know many companies have embraced it. You have a pretty impressive client list. Um, but I wonder, uh, I've seen many companies in the general, you know, vicinity of what you do, struggle to get past, you know, five or 10 million in revenue to create companies of size Mm -hmm. out of this. And I'm wondering, what do you think it takes to build a big business in this area?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Because we're right, we're right in the middle of what you're talking about right now. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and um, I think that, um, first of all, you've got to delight the users you know you know what I mean? and, and I don't just mean amuse them what I mean I, you know I like the word delight I think at the highest level we have to you know we have to help our customers with integrity I know this is going to sound Pollyanna but you know it's like we believe in this and we are you know every day trying to figure out better ways to help our you know help our participants and our and our customers um, transform you know, their capacity to, you know, manage through adversity. And the second thing I think you have to do is you have to be really flexible because right now, um, you know, technology is changing so rapidly that, um, you know, we can't, we can't afford to, um, you know, take a long time to build a new feature, because if we take a long time, by the time it's it's finished, it will be obsolete. So, you know, we kind of like do, and and that's perfect for my personality, by the way, because I'm like, that's work in the first three minutes. So (laughs) I'm not saying that the tech department's totally like that. But you know, you got to build quick, and then you got to
2: innovate. Well, that brings us all the way back around to our founder discussion, actually. Yeah, your last thought.
0: I guess the last thing, the last thing that I would say is I didn't, I didn't see the movie, but um, you know, I think that we are right now creating um, many, you know, sort of strategic distribution relationships, which are essential because you know we're. Tr- I think that when you get past, you know, when you want to go to from ten to fifty and million, and you want to do it quickly, you got to have ubiquity you know, it's like, I can't get my direct sales team to do that quickly enough. So that would be like that. So it's sort of like, you know, on um, the first two are kind of like mission and values. And then the third one is like, you know, hard-headed. get out of my way. We want to, you know, we want all, you know, we want all the channels opened.
2: Well, thank you, Jan. It's really interesting to talk to you about this today. It's quite a contrast to you know, the, the sort of hard science of last week and, and next week. Um, not that it's not science, but that it's so much more just soft, you know, feeling related. And I think that's really interesting and important, you know. And, and it really connects all, to so many all, people in their daily lives. Yeah, yeah, I'm
1: sitting here thinking, trying to take notes quickly. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly. Thank you so much for uh, your time today. Really appreciate having on you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Today's guest, Jan Bruce, was speaking to us today from Boston, where she leads Mequilibrium.
1: So I thought that was really, uh, uh, really, really sort of interesting, and it kind of I thought fell between a couple of different things we, we've, we've kind of that's come up on the show. On the one hand, um, it's the. Uh, the science from from University of Pennsylvania, from Seligman mm-hmm. on resilience that it's based on. I mean, it really is incredibly rigorous stuff. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, you know, it kind of reminds me of, and her, her approach to it reminds me of what we heard from Amada or what I've heard about from the folks at Virta Health, where they take an example of something that that, that works in, a, in, a, in an academic setting in, in and you know, that, that sort of robustly demonstrated and then try to use technology to implement it at scale. So I thought in the, in the sense of that, that being the aspiration that made a lot of sense to me, but but on the other hand, you know the the measurements of ROI and and sort of what they're saying. I mean, if it was someone who's doing a wellness company, you know, I think that we would have, you know, when you're measuring success by quantifying presenteeism. I, I, I've done those exercises, in management consulting, and it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's. Um, you know, it's different than sort of quantifying here is the, you know, this is the money that I've saved or these are the health costs that I saved, which is admittedly a super high bar. But
2: um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to think about, like, if we're going to have another downturn in the economy, which I mean, someday we will eventually. Right. Um, hopefully not, you know, next week. Um, but will this be more valuable or less valuable to employers, right? Will they? Will this be the first kind of thing they cut or the last thing they cut because it helps them through that difficult time or, or what? I'd And, I, and I guess I some of it
1: will really depend on, on what the experience is, whether it sort of feels like you're saying like today's, like the newest iteration of uh, even if it's based on solid science, if the implementation of it is, at the end of the day, something that is perceived or, or understood as touchy-feely and doesn't really have, um, you know, sort of rigorous, uh, you know, outcomes, uh, then then you know people might cut it. On the other hand, if there starts to be some uh, accumulated credible data in the workplace, which is sort of an oxymoron, but uh, to the extent you can do a rigorous or reasonably rigorous study that shows. It's really um, uh, impacting people the way that it's aspiring to. That would be really exciting.
2: Well, thank you for that thought. I really, it is a really interesting topic. I mean, obviously, uh, science alone um, doesn't doesn't cut it here. You have to have results uh, in the in the financial realm. I think for most companies, but it sounds
1: like they're well on their way. You can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. All right, three more things. Number one, please remember to review us on iTunes, leave a comment. Small gifts. Small gifts, that's right. Um, it's really, really helpful. Um, second, I want to acknowledge our sponsor. We're extremely grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. And the third thing, is, I would hope you will join us next time when our guest is Eric Praxlis, a data science extraordinaire now at Takeda and at Harvard. This episode
2: of Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio A in Hillsboro,
1: California. Ciao, baby.